Hello, welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. In this podcast, I'll be reading through all the works of of H.P. Lovecraft, at least as many of them as I can get my hands on. We're going to take a close look at the stories. We're going to take a slightly more uh, shallow and overview look at the letters and some of his nonfiction writing. So if you're listening along, you know all that. Um, but in um, right, right now, we're looking at the, the stories Lovecraft wrote before 1920. Five, and we're getting towards the end of that that list, that rather long list of, of stories. I think there's 27 or, or so, including some fragments that were published posthumously. Um, but we're getting to the end of the list, and and we're getting right to uh, getting right in the in the mix of a really notable stories, stories that that you know anyone who's like a Lovecraft fan comes across and reads at some point um, in their in their career as a as a Lovecraft reader. Um, so this story is one of his most famous, uh, one of his most well-known, and it's called The Rats in the Wall. It's so notable, or, or it's so, like, the, the, the concept, I, I should say, of, like, spectral rats in the walls kind of tormenting someone, you know, was even influential in one of Stephen King's earliest stories called Jerusalem's Lot, not connected in any way to Salem's lot, although the, the, the city is the same and, and maybe it's the same setting, but I think they're largely different. But that is a kind of a king trying to copy Lovecraft, copies them like almost literally plagiarizes him in the use of spectral rats and an and a, and a outer god, you know, and, and cults and traditions and old ancient books. So many, he kind of crams in a lot of Lovecraftian themes there. Um, but one that he repeats in that one is the rats in the wall idea. And we have someone, you know, in a, in an old house who hears rats, tries to kill them, is not successful in killing them and digs around and finds a, a deeper mystery to it all. Um, although this story I'm looking at here as part of like a trilogy of stories, all written around the same period of time. Uh, the Lurking Fear, this one, and then the festival, which all deal with the legacy of a family. And 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 heredity heredity, and and this, how the sins of the father sort of get passed on to later generations, and we have three very very different attitudes towards it. And the lurking fear, as we saw in the last episode, which you might want to go back and listen to if you're just jumping into this one, because I, I do see these stories as sort of going together. In the lurking fear, it's it's someone who's in total denial about his family history, so much so that it's actually not really ever demonstrated objectively in the story that the narrator of that story is part of the Martens family that's been degraded and, and corrupted and turned into uh, chuds um, you know but it's highly I mean it's pretty hard not to see it if you if you read the story carefully this story rats on the wall we have someone who totally embraces his family legacy right and in almost every way even to the point of madness and murder um, by the climax of, of the story in the festival, it's more ambiguous. In the festival, we have someone who's kind of following the orders of their family, of his family, kind of going through the steps. I said him. I'm, I guess I'm, I'm not quite sure the narrator of the festival is ever confirmed to be a man. Um, maybe not. Um, we never get a name for the narrator. But I assume, knowing Lovecraft, that the intention was it's a man. But let your imagination run wild with these stories. Can't do that with Rats on the Wall, though. Clearly a, a patrilineal descent, a story of patrilineal descent here. Fatherhood, of course, becomes very key to this story. Um, now, 
there's a couple ways to read this story. Um, the one is that is is the more literal reading that someone does starts revamping his ancestral estate back in England in retirement, uh, digs down, calls in a posse to help him dig into the depths, finds a grotto down there with a bunch of bones and and corpses and and proving that his family was was descended from from or his family kind of degraded into ghouls um, for, for centuries until that line was finally kind of snuffed out. Very much like Arthur German in that way where you have someone trying to snuff out the line, but nevertheless the line survives and in in, in comes some scions who, who kind of carry on the sin. Um, the other way to read this is more as a story of madness, someone driven mad by the death of his son in World War I. Uh, and I think this is also very much a World War I story, much more so than than you know some of the others we've been reading with of course the world uh in the 1920s was dealing in so many ways artistically politically economically with the legacy of world war one so it's not surprising we find those legacies and i think very few stories by lovecraft take on even though others are set in world war one literally like herbert west reanimator the temple dagon no story takes on the the horror of world war one and the and the psychological trauma of the war quite as directly as the rats on the wall does so it's, it's not only a story of kind of revealing the horror of, of one's past, of one's kind of family legacy. It's also a story of, of a father uh, coming to terms with the loss of his son. He's older, so he's probably not going to have another son of his own. And, and kind of in the, it, while learning about his family history, learning that his family history ends with him. And that's uh, very traumatic for our narrator. So let's jump into this story and see how we can interpret it and what kind of things we can notice here. Um, so our narrator, who, who, who has a name here, Delapoir, Delapoir, I mean, it's, he's, he's an American, and, but he's descended, like so many Americans are, from, from uh, Europe, from European um, lines, European royalty in this case, not really royalty, but, but aristocracy, right? Of course, that's kind of a fad, right? People go into ans to study ancestry, try to find their, you know, what kind of aristocratic ties their family might have in the past. Most of us don't have that, or if they have it, it's really, really diluted, but they like to imagine their ancestors being somewhat important. Um, but in this case, it's true. Anyways, as the story opens, we learn that our narrator has moved into Exim Priory. He moved on a specific date, July 16th, 1923. That's important because we know his son dies in World War I. So it's, it's several years after the death of his son. And he's a wealthy man. He's a wealthy merchant. His family kind of fell in hard times after they came to the Americas. But he's sort of become a successful merchant, rich enough to not only buy back his family estate in, in Europe, in England, but able to restore it. So he's got a lot of extra cash lying around. He's really got nothing else to prove in terms of his in, in kind of just being a captain of industry or being a, a successful cap, uh, capitalist merchant. And his family line dies out. So this draws him to Europe to, to engage in this quest of, of kind of restoring his family, family estate. Right. We learned that this this place has been basically empty since the reign of James the first. James the first, of course, is referring to James the first of England, who was, I think, James the sixth of Scotland. 
and he becomes king and after the death of Elizabeth I there was of course no more Tudor heirs so the closest was I think it was Henry VIII's sister was married to the king of Scotland and so the Stuart line inherited the throne of, of England through that line um, and so but anyways it's early 17th century it was the last time anyone lived that we know of in the in the Delapore castle um, now, this line is sort of cursed, and there's some knowledge that this line has some suspicious history early on. He writes, my literal progenitor and only survivor of the abhorred line. So the, the, the family is described as abhorred, abhorred, but one line survived by going to the Americas. Right? We also learn in the very first um, paragraph of the story that, that as this is being written, as the narrator is telling his tale that Exum Friar is being destroyed. So just like the end of Lurking Fear, we have a narrative of abolition of memory. Uh, to, once the, something is learned, the best thing to do about that is uh, forget it. And usually that can be done through destruction, physical destruction, eradication, burying it underground so it will never be found, except maybe in some future century, some idiot will, will dig around Exum Priory. Um, maybe there's a sequel to be written. Maybe someone wrote a sequel, right? Someone... Uh, finds some documents about Exum Priory, learns about the fate of Delapore, and says, well, you got to find out what's going on there, digs around, and, and you know, terror ensues. That could be a good story. Um, but as far as this, this story is concerned, the eradication is complete, and we're left only with a madman in, a, in an asylum and a few other people who, who witnessed a pretty grotesque murder and, and saw some strange things, but don't really know the full story necessarily. So anyways, the ancestor of note here is named Walter de la Poire. Um, he was the 11th Baron of Exton, so it is the, the main line. He goes to, 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 he goes to America, he goes to Virginia. And he founds a family there, uh, it's presumably a planter family initially. But it falls on hard times and eventually um, later generations kind of move their way north. Make I think it's actually the narrator's uh, the narrator himself is the one who kind of moves up north to try to start a new life up there. Now, in England, back back home, the Delapore estate is being managed by the Norris family, who is someone who's kind of interested in architecture, interested in, he's fairly knowledgeable, he's interested in folklore, he's interested in kind of the mythology surrounding Exum Priory. So he's, you know, he's kind of into that kind of Gothic, Romanesque, Roman architecture, right? And it, just like um, the Shun House, I, I emphasize a lot of geography and, and the landscape of that story. I think it's so key to that. Here is architecture. It's key. So as we find different layers of this castle, we find different layers of, of, of history. And finally, we get down to the Roman and even the strong suggestions of a pre-Roman um, legacy uh, of the Delapore family. We're told right away that Norris's interest is in architecture, quote, uh, much uh, studied because of its, well, the, the Exum Priory is much studied because of its peculiar composite architecture, an architecture involving Gothic towers resting on a Saxon or Romanesque substructure whose foundations in turn was still earlier order or blend of orders Druid, Roman or even Druidic or native Cimmeric, if legends speak truly. So we're told right away there's various levels of history to this to this site. Now, Romanesque refers to kind of the fad of the, of the early Middle Ages to copy the Roman style, 
right? It's, it's kind of like a mini renaissance. I think it was popular during like the reign of Charlemagne. Right, and you see sites like this in England that, you know, have this kind of Roman style with the rounded arches and the columns and things like that. Um, especially I think the rounded arches was really key to the Romanesque style. And this gets replaced then with the Gothic later on where, you know, you try to go higher, you have the ribbed vaults, the, the pointed arches, and the, all the decoration of the Gothic architecture and all that. But before the Roman, you have then you know, architecture that's a little bit more lost. You have things like Stonehenge and, and other sites and early castles. Perhaps, you know, not much survives from that period. Um, but maybe in the foundations, right? Maybe archaeologists can, can speak more on what kind of exists in England predating the, the Romans. But certainly there's Roman sites. You can, you can see Roman architecture when you go to England. Now, the Delaporte family is kind of secretive um, and... The really only evidence of, of the, reality, the truth of this family, and this is why our narrator has to kind of dig around and discover it through his investigations and his experiences in rebuilding the, the castle, is that Walter Delapore only had this note, this envelope that carried the secret, right? And basically the secret is, spoiler alert, if you've read the story, you know this, that their family was you know, engaged in cannibalism to such a degree that they were raising people who degraded into kind of quadruped humanoid creatures uh, that were just being kind of fed on by the Delaporte family. So they're a family of ghouls, of cannibals, uh, essentially, that have lived on that Exim Priory. And this was something that Walter Delaporte knew. Um, and when the family line gets abolished in Europe, he flees, but he carries with him this knowledge and it's in an envelope. He has a story in an envelope and it gets passed on from generation to generation, right? Unfortunately, this gets lost in the, in the Civil War, right? So it's the grandfather of, of our narrator, I guess, who, you know, his, his, during the Civil War, the Carfax, the family estate, was burned down, right? You know, they were on the James, so it was, they were in the South, they were the Confederacy in the Civil War. Their family was burned down by... By soldiers. Um, he was seven years old at the time that this actually happened. He, the narrator, has a memory of this, so we can kind of uh, get the age of our of our narrator. So it sets him, it makes him forty nine. He's forty nine years old when he begins the rebuilding of Exim Priory. So that age is important because he loses his son in his mid forties, you know, during World War One, and he's not really the age to begin a new family, to start a new family, to get remarried. There's no mention, I think, of a wife. I don't, I don't remember seeing a mention of a wife. Lovecraft's kind of famous for not mentioning women or not giving them names or just leaving them in the background. That's certainly the case here. But, you know, it assumes the wife's gone. I think Maybe I missed it. Maybe I missed it somewhere where it's mentioned, but the wife's not around. Uh, Maybe she figured out something and left him. I don't know. Um, but uh, he, he's, he's fairly old. And I think that's really important for the psychology of the story because it's someone who loses a son that, that cannot be replaced. It's, it's irreplaceable loss. So the only choice he has really is to go back to his heritage to find some meaning in his life. Right. But first, before that, you know, he's still a kid in the in Virginia. His family estate in Virginia was burned down. So he moves up north, becomes a, a, a Yankee, 
a Yankee businessman, a merchant. Um, but he doesn't like, he doesn't get much pleasure out of the, quote, grayness of Massachusetts business life. So it's kind of this Lovecraftian idea that kind of the modern capitalist world is, is kind of degraded and scummy and boring. It loses the aesthetic. It loses the aesthetic aspect of life. It's just, you don't want anything to do with it, right? So he wants to uh, move on. So the death of his son helps give him the catalyst to do something else with his his life. Oh, here, I found the mention of the mother. Alfred, the son, the one who dies in the war, is a motherless boy of 10 in 1904. That's all we know about, about him, all right? But he doesn't, he can't, doesn't have the envelope because our narrator didn't see the envelope and, and therefore, obviously, his son didn't. But anyways, he, uh, he dies uh, at some point in the war. Um, you know. In fact, it was this guy Norris, Captain Edward Norris, who took him to, to England to, and eventually to fight in the war in the, as an aviation officer. Um, so there's a long kind of history between the Norris family and the Delaporte family, and that's, that's key in this, the story because the Norris family is going to be key to building a, you know, bringing the Delaporte family, at least the one surviving member of it, back to, to Europe. So I'll, I'll just note here the obvious that we have a transatlantic family. We have a transatlantic identity in Mr. Delapore, much like Lovecraft himself had. I haven't said too much about it lately, mostly because it hasn't showed up in some of these stories. But obviously, I think Atlantic history is key to unlocking uh, Lovecraft's work in various ways, his racial philosophy, his views on ethnicity, his views on the sea. The Atlantic is key to that, and it kind of is rooted in his own transatlantic identity, his own fascination for an 18th century England, for instance. Um, but anyways, our narrator here is, after the death of his son, is, uh, is moved to buy Exim Priory. He dies it, buys it in 1918. Um, now, one thing I want to say here is the death of his son is, is so traumatic for him. I mean, I, I think this character probably has some kind of PTSD, which we, we, we know happens to people when they're in, you know, care for loved ones who are dying. Um, we don't even really get the clear mention that he dies. It's, it's skipped over. He can't even face it. He can't even write it down. It's only in a fit of madness that he finally says, like, the war took my son or the war consumed my son or ate my son. I think that's his final statement on his son. Well, I'll just, I'll just read the, the passage where we learn about the death of the son. Um, I bought Exim Priory in 1918, but was almost immediately distracted from my plans of restoration by the return of uh, my son as a maimed invalid. During the two years that he lived, I thought of nothing but his care, having even placed my business under the direction of partners. In 1921, as I found myself bereaved and aimless, a retired manufacturer no longer young, I resolved to divert my remaining years with my new possession. Right? But, you know, he's deeply, profoundly shaped by it. I mean, some of his last words in the story are, is the war ate my son. Um, and it's in a fit of madness that he says these things, but it's certainly part of his consciousness. And I, I really do think he has some form of PTSD from caring for his um, maimed son for two years while he slowly died. I mean, it's a horrific thing for anyone to, to face. I mean, many of us have to deal with this with our parents, of course, but you imagine with your son, it's, it's so much worse. And it was a common experience. It was something many people faced. Maybe they don't die, but they, they remain crippled or uh, mentally ill or, you know, having, you know, their own PTSD. 
unable to talk about the war, unable to communicate normally with their people. I mean, just the trauma of the war is so profound and we can't um, overstate just how big of an effect that had on an entire generation of, of people in the West. Um, but anyways, with nothing left to do, with no hope for really a life outside of, of his own kind of digging into his own past, he goes to Exum Priory. And I think this is the, the doom of our, of our narrator is instead of trying to build a life for himself in America, he just descends fully into the past. And to make this clear for us, uh, our narrator then goes deeply into the past of his family and we get the long history. Remember, again, I, like with the lurking fear, we only get the family history like deep into the story when we're like almost to the end, we finally get the family history. In Rats on the Wall, we get it right at the beginning. And I think that's a very different approach of these two narrators. Delapore is is totally into his family because that's all he really has. The narrator of The Lurking Fear, I don't really know what he has besides his own family history. He seems to be obsessed with it in his own way, but he doesn't want to admit it. He doesn't want to be as um, direct about his relationship to the Martenses. All right. We don't even get a clear explanation of his own family history there. Um, that's why I think many people read that and don't necessarily come to the conclusion that the narrator is the Martens. So anyways, we get into the, the history of Exum Priory and the history of the family. And for this, he goes to local traditions. Uh, once again, we see local traditions being the means by which a character finds out the truth about the past. The books don't fill in, don't tell the story. We have no text. We don't have the envelope. So all he's got to go on are the local tales. And who's collecting these tales? None other than Norris, who is kind of his handling his business for those few years. I mean, presumably from 1918 to 1923, someone has to handle his estate in, in England. Someone has to handle Exum Priory. Norris has these family connections. So he's there. And in addition to maintaining the house, he's spending most of his time talking to the locals about it. And we're again told that this site goes back to prehistory. It goes back to the Druids or even before the Druids. I deduce that Exum Priory stood on the site of a prehistoric temple, a druidical or anti-druidical thing, which must have been contemporary with Stonehenge. Now, that's going really, really far back. When you're talking about Stonehenge, I think you're going back five, 6,000 years, maybe even more. Let me look it up. Yeah, it takes us back 5,000 years. So it's dated around construction begins 3,000 BCE, as far as we can tell. Um, and, you know, there's some really interesting English history here, of course. England is, although it hadn't been invaded successfully since the 11th century, right? Their history is one of, period, of, of invasions, right? You have first the migration by the, the original inhabitants, the Celtic populations. There may have been some Paleolithic people living there before. Then you have the Anglo-Saxon migrations, the Viking invasions, the French. You have the Siri, the Romans, I forgot to mention in there, predating the Anglo-Saxons. So you have these pure, these various different cultural influences in 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 Britain, especially in England, where you know Ireland, Scotland, Wales remain a little bit more closer to that that pre-Roman past in various ways than pre-Anglo-Saxon, because the Anglo-Saxons, the Germanics invaders, didn't you know fully settle those areas. But anyways. The key here is the Romans. The Romans come, and of course, they bring with them their gods. They bring with them their traditions, and eventually that includes Christianity, right? And, and Romans played a key role in Christianizing, Christianizing Britain, right? But 
the site of Exum Priory, you know, which of course predates even the Delaporte family, stuck to these traditions. Um, and we have various signs of this uh, worship that predates what's called civil worship, basically the, the Roman gods and the Roman rites. Um, what do we have here? Uh, sorry. Yeah, he said, writes here, likewise, it is said that the rites did not vanish with the Roman power and that certain among the Saxons added to what remained of the temple and gave it an essential outline that subsequently preserved, making it the center of a cult feared through half the heptarchy. Um, so maybe there's some addition that the Romans bring, but it's built onto a tradition. So the continuity of the traditions here that the Delaporte family gets involved with go way, way back, go back to prehistory go back to Stonehenge essentially and that I think is a really really cool aspect of this this story it's really wonderful that the Delapores aren't special you know they are just a group of people who got interested in this local cults and these local traditions that like I said predate the Romans apparently but were influenced by the Romans and, and then they added to it but you know there's kind of a continuity of beliefs here and the Delapores are just people who live there who, who got involved in that right and it's kind of the, it's not even like, it's, it goes deeper than the kind of the sins of the father here. It's like the sins of a nation or of a whole culture that's uh, grappling with these prehistoric beliefs and the, you know, the Druids. I don't know how much Lovecraft actually knew about the Druids, but certainly he believed that these traditions were alive and well. I mean, he was influenced very heavily by Murray's book on the witchcraft, witch cults of Europe. And I think they, or she kind of, traces some of this stuff back to the to the druids and pre-christian religions i think there's it's, you know certainly beliefs in magic and things predate the christians and and you know survived even though europe was christianized so the the in after this besides this deep history we we actually have the the family of the delapores right and they they seem to be french i mean the name sounds sort of french so <clears throat> They are lifted up by the Norman Conquest. Um, so Henry III is the one who gave the site to his ancestor, Gilbert Delapore, first Baron Exum, in 1261. So it's a, it's a century and a half, or no, well, two centuries after the Norman invasion that this family is lifted up, right? So then we get into a little bit of the family history here, but pretty clear that you know, and it's admitted here by the author, by the narrator, quote, there seemed to be an inner cult in the family presided over by the head of the house and sometimes closed except to a few members. Temperament rather than ancestry was evidently the basis of this cult for it was entered by several who married into the family. So this, it kind of could grow. But my reading of this is that the Delaporte's just got interested in these, the, the site itself and its pre-Roman history of the architecture. And it's the local traditions and cults that, that existed. And this doesn't even fully go away, even when the family moves to, or the one, the one member of it um, moves to America. Because we have in a, a case here of uh, the narrator's cousin, Randolph Delapore, uh, who, of Carfax, that's the Virginia state, quote, he went among the Negroes and became a voodoo priest after return after he returned from the Mexican War. End quote. Now that that's a great movie treatment right there. I think. So someone get on that. 
Now, getting to more recent to modern history, we, we even have mentions here of, of somehow the Delapores can be connected in some way to the witches. Right. Quote, it, it, the belief that a legion of bat winged devils kept witches Sabbath each night at the Priory, a legion whose sustenance might explain the disproportionate abundance of coarse vegetables harvest in the vast garden. And most of it all was the dramatic epic of the rats, the scampering army of obscene vermin who had burst forth from the castle three months after the tragedy that doomed its desertion. Well, that, that gets to the climax of the story, the rats situation. The rats, as far as the story is concerned, the rats are historical and spectral. They're ghost rats. But they really connect to the, the final fate of the Delaporte family in, in Europe. So... Um, it's, it's hard not to imagine that the fall of the Delaporte family is connected in some way to like the, the witch hunts of the, of the 16th century. Obviously, you know, libraries have been written about the witch hunts of early modern Europe, their connection to the Reformation or to sexism or the emerging state or emerging like, legal systems, whatever. Millions of ways to interpret the witches and the witch hunts. Um, great history, fun to read, of course. Something Lovecraft was influenced by. Uh, he read some of the earliest scholarship available about the witch hunts in the, you know in the 20th century, and people in the 20th century never stopped being interested in the witch trials. I think people still are. Just look at the number of college courses taught on the Salem witch trials or, or other other witch trials. I just read a book on the Reformation, a huge chapter on the devil and witchcraft, and and how these new religions of the Protestant era of the Reformation, or even the Reformed the Reformed tradition and even the, 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 so the Catholic Reformation Church, they had to deal with this, you know, witches. Whether it's fanciful or not, they certainly thought witches were real and they thought the devil was real. And it, it's not hard to imagine here that the decline of the Delaporte family, remember uh, the narrator's ancestor, I guess was it Walter? moved in 1607, right? Right when these witch trials started to die down in, in Europe. They wouldn't die down in America for a while, I think. Obviously, the witch, Salem witch trials are in 1692. All right, so I'm a half hour into this podcast, and I'm like four pages into the story, maybe, maybe a little bit more, maybe six. Um, so, I, 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 you know, that's just how rich this is, and there's how much to talk about. But I think now we can stop and give a kind of summation, like a, a landmark as far as this, this analysis is concerned. And that is Delaporte here is restoring the architecture and in doing that, somehow trying to restore his family after the loss of his son. And in doing so, reawakens this, this horror, right? Which appears first as spectral rats then it finally is, is manifest psychologically in our narrator's mind as he realizes the truth about his family. He knows there's something fishy going on, but this doesn't scare him. This doesn't deter him. He, again, he's like lost. He's someone who has nothing at all in his life except this castle, right? And notice he bought it before he, his son came back and before his son died, right? You know, maybe in 1920, he thought, well, it sucks I have to care for my invalid son, but that's going to be my life, right? And XM Priory is going to be a, a footnote in his life. Just uh, extravagance of a wealthy Boston merchant. But with the death of his son, it becomes his obsession. And so restoring architecture 
leads to the restoration of the family, literally. He even changes the name back to the old spelling. But, you know, the New World spelling is one like, without the spaces. He, he restores the spaces when he goes back to England. He rest, like, he's restoring literally the family. And with that, then, the restoration of the horror comes not long after. So now we get uh, the, narr the narration of, of the actual horror, which is tied to the restoration of it. So, but the restoration of the architecture always is hand in hand for this narrator with the restoration of the family data, the legends, collecting legends, collecting knowledge, collecting documents, whatever you can to do that. He says, um, The others, these cats he's talking about here, the cats I accumulated whilst living with Captain Norris's family during the restoration of the Priory. For five days, our routine proceeded with the utmost placidity, my time being spent mostly in the codification of old family data. I had now obtained some very circumstantial accounts of the final tragedy in the flight of Walter Delapore, which I convinced to be the probable contents of the hereditary papers lost in the fire at Carfax. It appeared that my ancestor was accused with much reason of having killed all the other members of his household, except four servant confederates in their sleep about two weeks after this shocking discovery. Uh, now, we've seen this before. We've seen it in, in the Arthur German story. Um, in a way, with the alchemist, not quite this horrific, but it, its closest parallel, I think, is to Arthur German, where someone in the past of the family tries to wipe out the family line, but... But he doesn't kill himself. If Walter had killed himself, obviously there's no story. But instead, he just abandons Europe, kills everyone in the family, and, and goes to to America. Now, he seems to not have been part of this cult, or you know, he seemed to have been marginal to it. He wasn't engaged in the same thing that his family was engaged in, so he can kind of leave and make a new start. He's not tainted. Except there's a genetic taint that's passed on all the way to our narrator. Now, I mentioned the cats. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, this story is famous for the name of the cat, right? Nigger Man is the, the name Lovecraft uses. Some audiobooks read it through, others change it to just my cat. I'm fine with either. I don't want to make a big deal, but obviously Lovecraft was a racist. Th is this a racist story? Well, I guess uh, with the name of the cat, uh, he's using the N-word. That's that's a pretty racist thing to do. Uh, Lovecraft, you know, had an old cat with the same name in his own life. So that's a weird thing to do. But is this story racist? Well, in a way, the fact that it obsesses with genealogy and heredity, heredity and how we can pass on our, our, our sins. This is very much how eugenicists thought about things. They thought maybe not that knowledge is passed on, but cultural traits, intelligence. Uh, criminality, all right, a propensity to disease or promiscuity. These things definitely eugenicists believe could be passed on generation to generation, right? And you have phrenology in the 19th century that kind of has that same idea that the shape of our head informs our character. And that's obviously our shape of our head is something we get from our parents. So in that subtle sense, it is a racist story. But, you know, Delapore is not, you know, he's white, um, Unless there's some, some unspoken family history in the New World, you know, some he was a slave. I mean, it, it seems his family was slaveholders, so maybe there was some kind of miscegenation. But usually in the Americas, if you 
father to slave, they just grew up to be a slave. They, didn't, they weren't adopted into the family and become part of the legitimate family line. So let's, uh, that's all I really want to say about it. And it's notable in the story, but I don't think it's more of a distraction than anything else. So I'm kind of with the people who want, who want to edit it out when they read the, the story, just because it's kind of offensive to say. I know I just said it, but it's, I mean, it's just, it's not, yeah, it's not something I'm proud to, to do. Just in the scholarly objectivity, I guess, led me to, to say it. All right, moving on from this awkwardness. Um, anyways, here we got the fate of the Delapores, uh, that Walter Delapore killed his entire family after realizing some truth about it. So um, now we still don't quite know what's in the letter, what's described in the letter. Uh, of course, the truth is probably, it is revealed more or less in the, in the text of the story, um, but we never get really the details of it. So he moved in July 16th, and I think the restoration was already on its way. Um, so his son dies in 21. You know, I think the restoration had been going on um, before he even moved to to the priory. But, you know, when he moves there, it's already kind of well on its way to being restored. And another thing to mention here, I, I think I skipped this, is he restores it to its how it was in the past, to its medieval state. So, again, he's restoring the architecture exactly how it was. He's not modernizing it in any way. Right. He's restoring it as a medieval castle not as a, a, a modern mansion, you know, that in a, in a castle. Um, he keeps everything the old way. And again, it's his, just his total embrace of the past is, is what he does here. And I, I, think, I think Lovecraft's a bit ambivalent about this. I, the one, on the one hand, he liked to do this himself. He kind of idealized the 18th century. He wanted to go back to this past. He's a bit of a reactionary, certainly. Um, but in this particular story, it's, of course, dooming our character. Now, I just wonder if there's an alternate story. Um, sorry about that. If there's an alternate story to be told here where he comes back and he does modernize Exum Priory. Alternate timeline. He modernizes Exum Priory, running water, electricity, you know, all in Victorian, late Victorian style. Does it still happen? Does he still see the spectral rats? Or is there something kind of magical about him trying to restore it to its old old status? So right away, July 22nd, his cats are bothered, especially his old black cat, especially his, his cat. He's got other cats, though. He's got nine cats altogether. Um, they're not really important to the story. The others eight, only the... the the old black cat is the one that's that's most important, and he's the one most bothered by the by the thing. So he's close. To, I guess that cat is most closely tied in a, an emotional, psychological, gen, almost genetic sense to the narrator. I think that's why it's it's so significant here. But he starts being bothered by sounds in the wall, right? And the servants complain that the cats are really restless. Um, what they're experiencing here essentially is spectral rats now he is going to see rats but there's no physical evidence of rats they tries traps but the traps are triggered without any rats being caught but nevertheless it has a use because he's able to look into uh or he's able to follow the rats or the cats where they were bothered and he's like well there must be rats in the wall but that doesn't make much sense because these are 
stone, so maybe tunnels got kind of worn in through water damage over the years, and rats can live in there. But you know, it's, it's kind of unbelievable that you know rats could have survived in there. You know, but the the cats point to a place for him to look, and so he looks. And um, here's what Lovecraft writes: In a moment, the cat had jumped bodily on the screaming tapestry bringing the affected section to the floor with his weight and exposing a damp ancient wall of stone patched here and there by the restorers and devoid of any trace of rodent prowlers. Right? So this was a hole. There was a hole here. And then the, during the restoration, it got filled. So, you know. So this hole had always been there for, for centuries. So he talks to the servants. The servants don't have much to help him. They, they, they say, maybe the cats are a bit weird, but we didn't see anything. They set out traps. The traps aren't sprung. So he talks to Norris. And here we get the clear explanation that Norris was interested in this weird occult stuff. He, he had this kind of perverse interest. Quote, the odd incident, so slight yet so curious, appealed to his sense of the picturesque and elicited from him a number of reminiscences of local ghostly lore. We were generally perplexed at the presence of rats, and Norris lent me some traps in Paris Green, which I had the servants placed in strategic localities when I returned, right? And now, not only does he have these kind of, the, the cats are sensing these spectral rats, but he starts having dreams as well. Um, like his first dream here is described as such. I seem to be looking down from an immense height upon a twilight grotto, knee deep with filth, where a white bearded demon swineherd drove about with the staff of flock of fungus flabby beasts whose appearance filled me with unutterable loathing. Then as the swineherd paused and noted over his head, a mighty swarm of rats rained down on the sneaking abyss and fell to devouring beast and man alike. This is actually the description of actually what happened in the past. So he has some memory of his family that he's inherited. So woken up from one of these dreams, he goes out and investigates these sounds, these rats in the wall, the bothering of the cats, and he sees what he calls a rat riot. So he sees a mass of rats descending down into the walls, descending down, going down. Um, the quote, the rats continued their riot stampede with such force and dis direct distinctiveness that it could finally assign to their motions a definite direction. These creatures, in number apparently inexhaustible, were engaged in one stupendous migration from inconceivable heights to some depth conceivably or inconceivably below. So he goes to look he goes to investigate and so they go into the sub cellar so he's just going to go down he's going to the rats went down so i'm going to go down so he travels down as deep as he can into the castle into the sub cellar the sub basement that's as far as he can go and he brings captain norris with him he already, i think he goes down there and then he decides to call captain norris to, to explore together and here they find the roman architecture so we had like the medieval architecture on the top and the subcellar we have the remnants of the of the Roman architecture. It's really like how an archaeologist, you know, will find as they deep farther down, they go back in time, right? As it, it's, you know, the farther down you go, the farther back in time you go. Um, that's certainly happening here, right? In, in architecture. And it's just great how each layer of the castle was built on a previous foundation all the way down to the the grotto, which is already mentioned, it was in his dream, the grotto. The grotto is pre-Roman, uh, maybe built around the time of Stonehenge. I mean, it goes way, way back to the time of the Druids, 
to the um, primordial prehistoric antediluvian traditions that existed in, in Britain. Well, they find some Latin writing. Um, I'm going to try to read it here. Um, but it's referencing different Roman rites. The quote, the reference to Aetes made me shiver, for I had read some Candelus and knew something of the hideous rites of the Eastern God, whose worship was so mixed with that of Sybil. Norris and I, by the light of the lanterns, tried to interpret the odd in a face designed certain irregular rectangular blocks of stone, generally had to be altars, but could make nothing of them. Remember that one pattern, a sort of rayed sun, was held by students to imply a non-Roman origin, suggesting that these altars had, been merely, had merely been adopted by the Roman priests from some older and perhaps aboriginal tribe on the same site. One wonder of these blocks were some brown stains, which made me wonder. So if this was a, a site of worship, of Roman worship, it was just repurposed by the Romans um, from earlier traditions. The whole castle is just each each epoch is repurposing the castle, but the traditions live on. I mean, that's really the power of this story, I think, that you never really can escape these deep um, traditions that, you know, the, the legacy of this prehistoric past is still there. Um, and I see this in Lovecraft's work all the way back to Juan Romero, if not, if not earlier. Even Dagon has it. So if this is where the rats went, there's really no evidence of it, that maybe they went down further, but there's really seemingly nowhere to go. But anyways, what can you do? Their kind of investigation hits a, hits a wall, literally. Um, but he has more dreams, and he has the same dream, the dream of the grotto and of the, of the shepherds with, the, with not sheep, but these weird beast creatures that are being, being shepherded. Um, and he talks to Norris about this, they dig a little bit more into local legends and all that. But, you know, he continues to have the, the sense of the rats and the cats are continuing to going wild. And he gets the sense that the rats are leading him deeper and deeper down. So he and Norris go back down into the subcellar uh, to check out the altar. And then so they notice something here this time is that their, their lantern, when they're at a certain part in that subcellar, it flickers. So it's a sign of an error a draught of air coming in from somewhere deeper uh, in the in the castle. So they're like, wow, there's something here near this altar. And then they find these crevices in the floor and they break it away and they find they're able to actually break through into a place below the subcellar, right? But they're not going to go alone. And this is really a fun part of the story where they, they say, we're not going to go down alone. We're going to gather up a posse of, of antiquarians and archaeologists and scientists and even a psychic we're going to get whatever, you know, people who are interested into this weird crap. We're going to gather them together and we're going to go down in a big group. And I think it's like seven or eight people and the cat all are gathered together for this quest into the into the depths. Uh, he does this again in another story called the Dunwich Horror, um, where you know, at one point they gather together this posse. It's it's a lot of fun. I think it's. So it's like you get, you know, all these people, it's, this is interesting to people from so many different points of view, right? People are interested in ancient religious traditions, psychics who are looking for the supernatural and want to know about these spectral ghosts, archaeologists, historians, uh, scholars of religion, you know, tons of people would be interested in this stuff if something like this was really dug up. And so there's some, you know, it's kind of believable that he puts together this 
this gang of people. We don't get the full, we don't get all their names. I think we get the names of like three or four of them by the story. Originally, he only mentions Sir William Britton, who was uh, involved in a lot of excavations before, kind of an archaeologist um, who was involved in some other similar excavations of, of old prehistoric sites uh, in England. So on August 7th, they prepare for the descent. So this is not long. It's only a... It's only less than a month after he arrived in Exum Priory that he, he meets his fate. Yeah, the psychic they bring along is called uh, Thornton. So with the group together, August 7th, they descend into this sub-sub-basement, right? First, they investigate the Roman altar, look into it some more, find... Um, you know, documented all these are scientists and scholars and, and such. And they, they break through and they immediately find human bones. They find a host of human bones, like the whole, the, the room piled with bones, right? And this originally kind of freaks them out initially. That wasn't what they were expecting to see. They're expecting to see a tunnel, not a, quote, ghastly array of human or semi-human bones, both human and semi-human um, there. Quote, those which retain their collocations of skeletons showed attitudes of panic fear and all over were the marks of rodent gnawing the skulls denoted nothing short of utter idiocy cretinism or primitive semi-apedom um, so what we're going to learn later on is that there, there are going to be human bones because they were the Delapore family and even going before the Delapore family it seems people who lived here were cannibals but the Delapores seem to have added to this in which they started raising people as basically human cattle to be consumed and over generations of being raised in this you know in this sub sub cellar and these old antediluvian pre-roman grotto this grotto under the castle you know they, they begin to adapt they become chuds too but uh victims they're not not the, not going to prey on people they're just people literally in cages who have um, kind of evolved into uh, beasts of some sort, ape-like, uh, walking around on four legs and stuff. And he already saw this in his dreams. We've already been exposed to this as, as the reader as well. It's just the revelation that this is all real. It's great. This stuff's wonderful. I think this descent into this grotto is some of Lovecraft's best writing, some of my favorite stuff. Um, now, added to this is the real, realization, I think Brinton makes the observation, because he's the archaeologist, that the original kind of path out of this grotto up into Exum Priory, you know, was dug from the bottom up. So kind of it's, it's like a historical kind of narrative. It's literally bottom up that this tradition, this castle was built, built from the bottom up. And this tradition kind of comes from the bottom up, you know, back in time to the present, right? It's not, it, was, it wasn't built after Exum Priory. That's the real, that's what it's, why it's important about this is it wasn't built, you know, it wasn't they built Exum Priory and then built this tunnel to do their weird cannibals and stuff. This already existed. This was way back to the time of, of Stonehenge. Um, so they go down and eventually like, like Thornton faints. He faints a couple times in the story, right? It's not very... Um, not the most effective psychic. Maybe because he realized he sees everything. He's able to sense the crimes, the horrors that that took place there. Um, but anyways, there's just this sea of bones of different types. Uh, like a foamy sea, 
they stretch the bones. They stretch. Some fallen apart, but others wholly or partially articulated as skeletons. These later invariably in postures of uh, demonic frenzy, either fighting off some menace or clutching other forms with cannibal intent. Um, we get a name of another one of the scientists, Dr. Trask, an anthropologist. He's there to kind of study the... Well, I don't know why they brought an anthropologist. They weren't expecting to see bones. But since he's there, he's able to look at the bones and say, aha, you know, these are like even lower than Piltdown Man. Um, Piltdown Man being, of course, a, not a real species, but at the time they thought it was. Um, lower in the scale of evolution, but in every case decidedly human. So these are people who were kidnapped and degraded. Or maybe they were kept in this kind of pre-human state for for centuries going back to Stonehenge. Maybe it wasn't the Delapores who started this harvesting and this this kind of um, domestication of, of humans for, for cannibal rituals. But there is a little bit here of scientific racism and racial science added in. And so we, we got to have an anthropologist there to kind of give that uh, bit of the story a little bit of a, a, a punch. Uh, Many were of higher grade, for, this is recording him, many were of higher grade, but a very few were skulls of supremely and sensitively developed types, end quote. Very much rooted in the ideology of racial science at the time. That, that different races, different cultures, were on different levels of this evolutionary chain of being, some more advanced, some, some less advanced. So then for about two pages, we're almost to the end of the story, but for two pages, we get just this beautiful description of this grotto that they find when they get through this sea of bones. They get down there and they see this huge grotto that's massive. And this is where this antediluvian cult had existed, intermingling with the civils, intermingling later on with Christians like the Delapores and other groups. So it's, it's like almost a metaphor for England itself, this hybridity of traditions one added on the other, but the old never being fully abolished or taken away. Um, and what they find here is, of course, they find the cages. They find um, uh, graffiti written in different languages uh, from different time periods. The Roman graffiti, they've already sort of seen, but some recent, as recent as 1610. 1610, interesting date. Because if that's the last you know, kind of graffiti, then, and we assume Walter did his deed, his murder of his family sometime not long after that, right? It's during the reign of James I, of course, um, that Exum Priory is abandoned. And he comes to Virginia. He's coming to Virginia in the very, very earliest days of Virginia history, right? So he's like, like one of the founding fathers of the colony of Virginia. Um, so if you want to kind of twist this interpretation a little bit, like, this sins of Europe have been carried to America and are part of the founding, like that literal founding of America, right? You know, America wasn't founded in Boston, in Massachusetts Bay, or even the Pilgrims. It was founded in Virginia, right? And that, that's, of course, it becomes a slave society. I think that's significant, right? I mean, I, I talked a lot in the series I did on Francis Parkman, how he sort of sees, Francis Parkman saw New England as the kind of the root civilization of of the United States but I argued throughout that series that I don't think that's the case I think you know the south is much more representative of the way America would become um, you know a society built on racism and genocide and 
course, the Puritans had their own genocide. So, but certainly the the this a, a, a class based society rooted in slavery. That's the founding story of America, and Walter Delapore is part of that. So that's what I think the significance of the date here. But that more or less dates when when this this horror ends. It's kind of convenient that this guy can kind of trace the language on that to exact dates, but whatever. Lovecraft's often convenient when he needs to be. Um, so, what do we see down here? Uh, cells, empty cells, bones, uh, coat of arms. We get the confirmation that this is family because he sees one of the skeletons has the seal of his own Delaporte coat of arms. If you didn't already know, I mean, it's pretty obvious that this is the Delaporte family doing this. Um, but there's a case here, there's an argument being made at the end of this story for forgetting. Quote, having grasped to some degree the frightful revelations of this twilight area, an area so hideously foreshadowed by my recurrent dream, we turned to that apparently boundless depth of midnight cavern where no ray of light from the cliff could penetrate. We shall never know what sightless Stygian worlds yawn beyond the little distance we went, for it was decided that such secrets are no good for mankind. But there was plenty to engross us close at hand, for we had not got far before the searchlight showed us the accursed infinity of pits in which the rats have feasted, and whose sudden lack of replenishment had driven the ravenous rodent's army first to turn into living herds of starving things and then to burst forth from the priory in that historic orgy of devastation which the peasants will never forget. So here's the explanation of the rats. So basically, when the Delaporte family was gone, the rats eat all the cattle. They had this kind of degraded quasi-human cattle that remained were consumed by the rats. It's really nasty sh stuff here. And then they flee out and they assault the peasants, the nearby peasants, and this becomes part of peasant traditions and peasant um, rituals. But yeah, some really deep history here. And we get another reminder of this Celtic, Roman, English, uh, this gen different generations um, repeated again and again in this story. And it's not going to be the last time. We're, we're getting towards the end, though. Um, so the climax of the story comes when our narrator essentially goes mad after kind of taking all this in. And now he claims, he's, a, he's mad at the time he's in an asylum when he's writing this. So he claims he felt a rat and that he blames what happens on a rat, but it's, it's actually he, he who does it. Um, he says, it must have been the rats, the vicious, gelatinous, ravenous army that feasts on the dead and the living. And then we get a quote because we're told that he, this is directly quoted from what he said. The rest of this paragraph, and this is the second to last paragraph of the story, we are told that this is what he's recorded of having said by these other witnesses, right? Why should the rats eat Adelapore as Adelapore eats forbidden things? The war ate my boy, damn them all, and the Yanks ate Carfax with flames and Bert, Grand, Shire, Adelapore, and the secret. No, no, I tell you, I'm not that demon swineherd in the Twilight Grotto. It was not Edward Norris's fat face on that flabby fungus thing. Who says I am a Delapore? He lived, but my boy died. Shall Norris hold the lands of a Delapore? It's voodoo, I tell you, that spotted snake. Curse you, Thornton. I'll teach you to faint at what my family do. Um, and he says a little bit more here in various languages, Latin, Celtic, and eventually kind of 
prehistoric um, grunts that maybe even suggest that this goes back even farther to, you know, pre-human um, hominid kind of times. I don't know if that's a suggestion. But this is so full of like vengeful rage at what's been lost. And I think that's why, you know, this story, I mean, it's, it's wonderful just as a story of someone kind of realizing this about his past, but in, in such a deeper level, it's a story of, of loss and, you know, the loss of his identity, the loss of his family. His, his, he's lost two estates, you know, his family's lost two estates to various acts of violence. Um, you know, two wars, the Civil War and World War One, destroy what's left of his family. And he goes mad at this moment, you know, and he just embraces his family tradition. And he eats the face, kills Norris, eats his face in kind of this mixture of vengeance and kind of a genetic destiny kind of mixed together. Now, he's found later with the, where um, they found him three hours later over the plump, half-eaten body of Captain Norris. Now, the narrator claims he never did this. He claims that he was, that it was the rats who did it, but no one else sees the rats. It's kind of established the rats are in his mind. They're spectral rats, dream rats, whatever, but they can't see it. So there's something kind of supernatural going on, but you know, no one else really sees the rats. It's been repeated several times in the story that no one else sees the rats. The traps are never sprung. The poison's never eaten. Um, but, you know, he's dra dragged away to asylum for the, for the insane. And we know that the, the X-Empire is being totally abolished. So these other survivors, you know, who know what they've seen, they think that it's already been established that they think the best thing is to hide this from humanity. Not, you don't write a paper on this. Even the scholars here, they're not going to write a paper on this. Instead, they just tear it down and they destroy it. So much like the conclusion to The Lurking Fear, the solution to the problem is forgetting um, and using whatever force is necessary to forget. So that's Rats in the Wall. A real doozy of a story. One of my favorite Lovecraft stories, actually. And I think it's so much going on here. So many great themes. Transatlantic families. Uh, legacy, we got genetic stuff, we got a little bit of race here, we have um, religions and traditions galore. I love that part of it. That's, I think, uh, what comes off strong, most strongly for me is, the, is the, the deepness, the thickness of tradition in one area and how even a half dozen conquests can't totally abolish, can't replace that tradition fully and it's going to live on in the depths, in the grottos, under, under the ground or whatever. So, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I, I can't believe anyone doesn't like this story unless they're totally creeped out by the, by the, the final scenes. I, I think it's, or they're really afraid of rats or something. Wonderful story, I think. So, uh, yeah, let me know what you think, though. Send me an email. Send me your, send me your uh, comments. Leave me a tweet. Or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Next up, uh, the festival. So that's going to be the third in this kind of trilogy of stories dealing with family and family's legacies. Uh, it's, it's much more ambiguous than the, the first two. I think it's shorter. It's maybe quicker to talk about. It's a little bit more surreal. The whole thing is, is really bizarre. But it, it's kind of thematically tied in this issue of like the sins of the father 
but all it's 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 like on a different level. It's it's so much more mis, you know. The whole thing's more dreamlike. Yeah, that's that's what I want to say. So I'm looking forward to talking about that story with you. So that that will be next in the next episode. So uh, that's it for now. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.